Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In 1961, Helen Andlin, Mormon housewife and mother of eight, languished in a lackluster 20-year-old marriage. A religious woman, she fasted and prayed for help. As she studied a set of women's advice booklets from the 1920s, Andlin had an epiphany that not only changed her life, but also affected the lives of millions of American women. She applied the principles from the booklets and found that her disinterested husband became loving and attentive. She ended up publishing a book and leading a movement called Fascinating Womanhood. Countering second-wave feminists of the 1960s, Andalyn's message calling for the return to traditional roles appealed to many in a time of uncertainty and radical social change. Julie Newfer is out from a new book from University of Utah Press, Helen Andalyn and the Fascinating Womanhood Movement. It tells this intriguing story and looks at a crucial but often overlooked cross-section of American women as they navigated their way through the turbulent decades following the post-war calm of the 1950s. Julie Newfer joins us on the phone. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Uh, you are, uh, I believe, at Eastern Washington University in Cheney. Yes, I teach American history there. All right, got your PhD from Washington State University. So, yes, I did. I understand you had uh, at least your mother had personal experience with uh, with Helen Andlin. Am I saying her last name correctly? Um, Newfer, correct. Yes. Uh, uh, no, I mean Andlin. Oh, Andalyn. Yeah. Andalyn, yes, that is correct. Okay. Uh, so, um, uh, Helen Andalyn um, grew up, I believe, in Mesa. Yes, that's where she grew up. That was, uh, Mesa was my hometown as well. Okay. Uh, so, uh, and uh, she, I think her maiden name was Barry. She was uh, raised in a, a devout Mormon family. Yes. Ended up in, I think, Santa Barbara, marrying uh, Mr. Andalyn. That's correct. Her uh, her husband was a dentist, and shortly after they got married, they moved to California. He um, he went to dental school there, and uh, they stayed there and raised their family. So eight children, a big family. Uh, I guess not completely unusual for that time, and 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 for you know a Mormon family. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I guess the problem was she was dissatisfied with her marriage. She was unhappy. What uh, describe her marriage? Yes, she said that uh, at a certain point, before they had children, now they couldn't have any children for five years, and then she went to see a doctor who put her on a very powerful um, medication that helped her get pregnant. But she, they couldn't have any children for five years, but she described those five years as just blissful. And then she had uh, all of these kids, two of them were adopted, and so um, she had eight children, very, very closely together, and at some point realized that her husband was not that attentive. He had started to ignore her. He was cranky. He came home from work and uh, had his meals alone in the bedroom because he didn't couldn't handle being with uh, all the noisy kids. And so at some point she said that she became as in, about as important as the kitchen sink to him. Hmm. And she uh, sought out the advice of one of her old friends. And uh, this friend, Verna, lived in California, and Helen called her. She was actually a former um, companion with her. Uh, Helen had gone on a Mormon mission, LDS mission, and Verna was her old mission companion. So she called Verna and said, I've got problems with my 
husband, I don't know what to do. And Vernon said, well, come out here and come and visit me, and I think I might have an answer for you. So she went to see her friend, and her friend showed her these advice booklets that her mother had given her when she was a teenager, and they were called Fascinating Womanhood. And hmm. so there, uh, there were eight of them. And so Helen began to read these books, and she thought, I've found the answer. And prior to that time, she'd been fasting and praying and trying to search the scriptures to find out what she could do to make herself a better person and hopefully save her marriage. But she read these booklets, she felt that she had an epiphany, and she came back um, from California and felt that she had been called by God to, um, to give this message to other women. And we'll get into what that message is. And, and for today's times, uh, even more than, I guess, uh, uh, the feminists of that time, it's, it's pretty amazing what, uh, what, what the advice was, was given. But she experienced in her life, uh, it worked for her, right? Her, her disinterested husband became very interested, and, uh, and, and it, uh, at least in her mind, produced a happier marriage. Yes, she describes a miraculous change. She said that he started leaving her love notes. He started coming home from early from work. He um, started playing with the kids, cut business trips short, brought her flowers. She said it was just a miraculous change, and she really felt that God had answered the prayers. And, and so, so she, so she felt that uh, this was kind of a universal message. Hmm. And, and uh, I think uh, you're right. She, she felt it was a religious duty now to share this with other women. Yes, she did. She felt that because God had given her this these tools, that God had also called her to take this message to other women. She realized that there were many, many unhappy women. She realized that um, the divorce rates were very high, and this was really her answer. She didn't know anything about Betty Friedan and the feminists. This was um, this was before she had any any idea who they were. It's interesting that I think almost at the same time, Betty Friedan was seeing similar problems, right, and responding to those unhappy married women unhappy in traditional roles. Her response, of course, was very different. And she wrote the Feminine Mystique. I think came out the same year as, as Fascinating Womanhood. Yes, it did come out the same year. So they they both recognized problems, but they had two very different um, solutions. And Ferdan was basically wanted to change the social order. The the the, the traditional patriarchy she believed um, was simply wrong, and she wanted to change that. Andalyn, her solution was to return to traditional. Uh, values. She didn't have any problem with patriarchy, and she felt that this is what would make women happy. And so the, this book, Fascinating Womanhood, came, uh, I guess, borrowed heavily from these advice booklets from the 1920s. She also took from scripture, right, classic literature and uh, other places. Um, so, so tell me a bit about the the philosophy, the, the, the principles here. What, uh, what What is she advising women to do? Well, at the heart of it, she believes that women have a lot of power. She's not advocating that women give up their power. 
she just believes that uh, believe that women um, found their power if they if they lived out their traditional roles, and so part of these roles were obedience to her husband, and um, she really found didn't find a problem with that of women being powerful and also obedient because she felt that that was God's role. She also encouraged women to be feminine, so act ladylike, dress like a lady. She encouraged women to not wear pants. Uh, She encouraged women to not ever compete with their husband when it came to doing what she considered male work, like uh, changing the tires on the car, (laughs) mowing the lawn, painting, but also um, typical what at the time was understood as typically male attributes like um, ambition, competitiveness, um, being really good at particular things. She really felt that women should take uh, to should step back and excel at the things that they should be good at, like homemaking, uh, teaching their children, caring for their husbands, and so she. Um, came up with this idea that became famous, the domestic goddess. And so that term, actually, she borrowed from a a classical book, but this term domestic goddess was kind of the the catchphrase for being the perfect homemaker, somebody Mm -hmm. who took pride in their work and um, didn't feel like it was um, demeaning to women to care for their home, to care for their family and their husbands. And so what what happened was that all of these women that Ferdinand didn't really speak to, these women that couldn't really um, relate to what Betty Ferdinand and the feminist movement was doing, it was sort of like a shot in the arm. They were able to get a little boost in their status, like, well, maybe we aren't just doing this demeaning work like feminists tell us. This is sacred work. It's important work. And we are being uh, better people. We're being better Americans because we're raising the next generation. Hmm. Now, uh, Betty Friedan, as I understand it, she's pushing back against this idea of a feminine mystique. Right? That's the title of her book. She's pushing back against that. Sounds like Andalyn is embracing that. Andalyn is embracing it. And she, um, at first, she didn't know who Ferdinand was. She had no idea who the feminists were. And in time, when she learned more about them, she just considered them sort of misguided women that uh, once they heard the truth, her truth, that or the universal truth, as she thought, that they would come around to her way of thinking. They were, she called them her sisters, but her misguided sisters. There's uh, there are a couple of photographs in the book. Um, at a certain point, once she became well known, I guess she'd be called upon to be uh, the re- representative of traditional roles in in discussions. Uh, there's a yes. picture on uh, she's on stage with Helen Gurley Brown, uh, Jacqueline Suzanne, and uh, Adela Rogers St. John um, on a, a program called The Big Question. Uh, she she became I guess well known uh, associated with these ideals. Yes, she became a celebrity. She was on uh, uh, 
hundreds of radio programs. She was interviewed by Connie Chung and Phil Donahue, and she was a very, very uh, Larry King. She was a very um, sought-after guest because she was articulate, she was pretty, she didn't mince words, and she was a very uh, sought-after, as I said, a very sought-after guest on radio shows and on TV. And often what would happen is they would invite Angelone on and then invite uh, some of her uh, feminists on, and they would um, see what happened when these two groups, mm-hmm. uh, the two types of women got together. And um, Angelin was a formidable debater, and the reason she was was not because she was highly educated. She only had um, maybe a semester or two of college, but because she believed that she spoke the truth, and uh, she didn't feel like she needed any credentials to do that because she believed she'd been called by God. So when people would question her, well, what are your credentials? You're not a, a family counselor or you don't have a Ph.D., she would just say, I speak for God. And then to her uh, debaters, she would challenge them. She would just, you can see in that picture, she's pointing her finger, and she's basically calling these women to repentance, <laughs> saying, if you don't repent of your ways and stop leading American women astray, you will have to suffer the consequences. Um, God will punish you for this. And so sometimes her antagonists would just clam up. You know, they would, you know, how are you going to argue with that? Or so what she, or they would get very angry at her. And so there would be a very spirited um, debate. And Angeline would sit there quietly and ladylike in her, you know, kind of a frilly dress and her very feminine attire. And so the outcome was is that many of her feminist uh, debaters would end up looking angry and upset and, and really sort of play into some of the negative stereotypes that feminists had to put up with when they were trying to make their, their point known. And so, um, but Andalyn would also speak at colleges, and many times she was booed off the stage. And so people would boo so loudly that her husband would actually walk up to the stage and sort of uh, lead her off at uh, one, at one uh, speaking engagement, and I think it was at UCLA, she said the women booed very loudly, but then the men clapped very loudly. They're uh, all hmm. for it, <laughs> which made <laughs> I would imagine, women yes. even more angry. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, more with Julie Newfer. She's written a fascinating new book. It's Helen Andelin and the Fascinating Womanhood Movement. Uh, I'd never heard of this. Um, you may have heard of it, uh, and uh, I was talking to someone last night who, who said that she had encountered it. Um, and uh, we, I do have a Facebook uh, post that we'll get to after the break uh, saying that uh, she's had an experience with this. Love to get your experiences. Uh, had you heard of the Fascinating Womanhood Movement? Uh, what's been your experience with it, and what do you think? Um, some of these principles and, and quotes, I imagine, would... <laughs> 
would cause high blood pressure in a lot of uh, today's women. And uh, you're saying Julie Newford did at that time as well. Uh, So going into the break, uh, just a couple of quotes here. Uh, Happy wives are helpless wives. It's one of uh, Anderlin's sayings. Women's needs are the same the whole world over. To make men happy, to understand the masculine nature and to be loved. And finally, when a man was cross, he's usually justified. These are, uh, these are quotes. Um, we'll, we'll get into more of the fascinating womanhood principles. Also talk about Andalyn's efforts to get this noticed and sanctioned by the uh, Mormon church, her own church. She was ultimately unsuccessful in that. More on this, and we're opening the phone lines at 1-800-826-1495. Following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Square One Printing, 630 West, 200 North, Logan. Personalized printing for home, school, or business, including banners, business cards, and letterhead. Information at squareoneprinting.com. The first thing which struck me on being introduced all around was that I was in the presence of wealthy people. People who were bored to death and who were all, including the octogenarians, already three sheets to the wind. The Dinner Party from Hell on Selected Shorts from PRI, Public Radio International. Sunday afternoon at 3 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. We're recounting fascinating history today. Uh, if you're not familiar with this, I hope you're enjoying as I am learning the history. In 1961, Helen Andlin, a Mormon housewife and mother of eight, languished in a lackluster 20-year-old marriage. Uh, she was a religious woman. She fasted and prayed for help. And as she studied a set of women's advice booklets from the 1920s, she had an epiphany. This not only changed her life, but affected the lives of millions of American women. And uh, her book and her movement became the Fascinating Womanhood Movement. Uh, countered the second wave feminists of the 1960s. And uh, Julie Newfer, uh, I think uh, this appealed to millions of women because it was a time of shifting, uh, I guess, sands in terms of values and roles. And uh, some women wanted to hold on to those traditional roles or at least feel safe. Is that, was that the impulse? What, uh, what, was the, what was the appeal of fascinating womanhood? Well, uh, any time that you have social upheaval and uh, discontent, people tend to want to hold on to or conserve, which would be conservative, want to conserve the things that they understand to be traditional and safe. And so often you get a backlash against uh, what is considered liberal or uh, unsettling new ideas. And so the women's movement went through that, especially in the 1980s, we had a backlash against the feminists. And so um, Angelin, uh, she got started earlier than the 1980s, but many women who felt that they had been belittled by some of the feminist leaders, um, for instance, uh, Helen Gurley Brown, uh, um, the editor of Cosmopolitan magazine, actually referred to housewives as parasites. And um, Betty Friedan called the home a comfortable concentration camp. So this was highly inflammatory and uh, insulting to women who had spent their whole lives raising their children, 
doing their sa- the same things that their mothers had done. And so when Andalyn came along and said, actually, your work is very, very important, um, they, they uh, uh, rallied around her and thought, you know, we don't want to step into these uncertain waters of the feminist movement. Many of these women didn't have college degrees, so what kinds of jobs could they get? Only low-paying jobs. How are they going to afford daycare for their children? How are they going to afford a professional wardrobe so that they could go to work? So, And many of these women were highly religious. So she appealed to these women. She started out with her message. She started teaching at local churches, and pretty soon her classes filled up. And then she moved to the YMCA building, and those classes filled up. And then uh, she went on to move to larger and larger venues. Finally, she got some volunteer teachers who started to teach the same message. And then her followers said, would you write a book so that we have some kind of a textbook so we could continue to follow these principles? And so she wrote this book, which she also felt was a calling from God. Hmm. And it took her a couple of years to write the book. She had no writing experience. And so she wrote this book and uh, borrowed heavily from the advice booklets, but she also added in quite a bit of scripture from the Bible to justify her traditional understandings of womanhood. And she also used uh, writers such as Victor Hugo, Charles Dickens, so utilized some of the female um, characters in those books as examples of how women should act and how men would act toward a very feminine woman. Now, some of these quotes, I'm just you know, pulling some of these quotes, and I'm, I'm uh, piggybacking on a review of your book from uh, By Common Consent. This is by Jesse Jensen. These are some quotes that stood out to her. Um, and, uh, you know, if I put myself in the, in the uh, I guess, the minds of women today, it... <laughs> Imagine I could get apoplectic here. I'll ask you how, you know, how maybe some of the women have reacted uh, then. But, for example, happy wives are helpless wives. Uh, women's needs yes. are the same the whole world over. To make men happy, understand the masculine nature, and to be loved. And then love, she said, will never blossom forth until we surrender to a man. Of course, this, this is anathema to, I guess, the, you know, what, what I would say most women believe today. Well, I would agree. Uh, interestingly enough, many of Andalyn's attitudes or her ideas, such as men and women, are inherently different, and they have different goals, and all women want to be loved. Uh, some of those ideas were recycled and used again in the 1990s. For instance, uh, John Gray's book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, he talks about this very same thing. Women want to be loved. Men want to be admired. There are these inherent differences. Um, uh, Barbara Doyle wrote a book in the 1990s called The Surrendered Wife. It was very popular, and she utilized these same ideals. So somewhere out there, there is a market, there are women who um, agree with these ideals. Of course, a lot of women are um, offended, completely offended, and sometimes uh, the first time I wanted to um, 
to talk about some of my research when I was at WSU, Washington State University, and I offered to speak for Women's History Month, and I wanted to offer some of my research in a professional, to give a professional paper. I had the Women's Studies group um, tell me I couldn't, well, I, they told me that they were not going to come to my, um, to my presentation. And I said, well, you know, I understand that it's, that it is offensive, but, um, you know, I'm not promoting this. I'm a historian. I'm just telling the history. And nobody has really studied this part of the women's movement. And so I call it the other women's movement. Mm. Um, but it was huge. But because it's unpopular and because some of the ideas, well, many of the ideas just sound far-fetched or they sound offensive, some of them even silly. Um, historians have kind of shied away from this, from this subject. So I felt that it was a story that needed to be told. And I felt that although after reading hundreds and hundreds of letters to Andalyn, where women said, you know, my marriage was transformed, I feel happy, I'm... Um, I'm happier in my position as a housewife than I've ever been. Uh, I really felt that these women had a voice that needed to be listened to, even though uh, it was offensive to some of my personal sensibilities. I don't um, promote Andalyn's philosophies personally, but I do promote her right to be heard and the the historical importance of her message. I found her to be just a historical treasure. Mm -hmm. um, I really did. I, I found her to have a whole different way of looking at that particular time period that a lot of us as educated people or just regular people just don't know much about. Yeah, it her is. message was very popular, and it has been recycled, and people are still listening to it. Yeah, I, I, um, I guess it's, it's, it's an indication of, of where this has all gone that, that, that I had never heard of her and a lot of people hadn't. But uh, I do take your point. It's, it, it is intriguing history and, uh, and deserves to be known. Uh, we, we are uh, now stacking up responses to the program, and uh, definitely you can, uh, you can join the program. Hope that you will. If you have an experience with fascinating womanhood or, or a comment or a question, the number is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. You can join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio, on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, and you can email us to upraccess at gmail.com. First up is uh, Terry on the phone. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's good to be on the program. Um, I was just listening and um, just wanted to make a quick comment. I was um, born in the 50s and raised in the 60s and remember this book really well. Um, and I think it's very interesting because now as an adult and someone that's been married for over 40 years, uh, my children are the ones that seem to um, have issue with a lot of this because it was the way I was raised to believe that um, women should, you know, honor their husband and really be more of uh, an accessory in their life than your own person. And, mm -hmm. um, but to me, that made me a very happy person personally to 
feel that I was doing something really good for, for my family and for my children. Um, the, you know, the unfortunate thing is, is the kids have gotten older and they say, gosh, mom, you gave up all of this. You, know, you mm-hmm. gave up your whole life to do that. Um, and I think it's too bad that they feel that way. Um, but on the other side of the coin, I do think that the book did um, a disservice for a lot of women my age because um, we were taught to believe that that, um, that was how we would be fulfilled and that we maybe lost track of who we were ourselves, and, and that did not always play well in marriage. So um, I, I think it's an interesting, you know, conflict, uh, and uh, I'm, I hope our children will all learn more and better. Thanks, Terry. Appreciate that. Uh, so, Julie, for uh, uh, Terry sees a generational shift, and uh, she, she saw some good in the book and, and some bad as well. I, when I talk with uh, my college students and other women, and I ask them, how many of you were raised by stay-at-home mothers? And uh, it's usually half of the classroom, and how many of you were raised by working mothers? And so I ask them, now, if your mom was a working mother, how would you feel if somebody said that she had done everything all wrong, that she wasn't fulfilling her her duties, and that she was essentially not being a very good mother. And then I asked my students with the working mothers, how would you feel if somebody called your mother a parasite or said that her work was so unimportant that an eight-year-old child could do that work, which is what Betty Friedan said. And then they start thinking about it. And when I have talked with women, uh, women in their 30s, women in their 40s, many of them are saying now, I just wish I could stay home and raise my children. I wish I didn't have to go to work and put my kids in daycare. But it's a luxury I can't afford. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see that many women in uh, the 60s and 70s who we who belonged to the feminist movement were saying, I have the right to go out and work. I, I want to do this. I want to put my kids in daycare so I can fulfill myself personally. And, um, you know, you can't argue with that. But there are the other side, and many of them I talk to now when I'm out uh, giving lectures, and they say, you know, I want to stay home with my kids. I hope I marry somebody that makes enough money so that I can do that. So, um, but there is the problem of, what about, if you devote your whole life to your family, what about your personal goals and dreams? So this is, this is an issue. This is one of the criticisms of Andalyn is, what about these women after their children are grown? Then what? You know, so that is, that is an issue. And I'll, well, I'll follow up on that. That's an interesting question. We do have uh, some more callers, and we thank uh, Terry for calling in. Uh, next up is April in southern Utah. April, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Hi. Yes, um, Hi. I, I'm finding this conversation just to be fascinating. There were two points that I, I wanted to bring up. Um, in the typology, personality typology that Carl Jung um, brought up, the 16 fundamental personality types that have been adopted by the Myers-Briggs um, mm-hmm. testing, Females tend to be 
of a particular personality type tend towards more of the feeling types. And I think that's where a lot of this women need to be loved and women need to feel loved comes from because the majority of females exhibit these particular characteristics. However, I think what's been overlooked is how that need can be met not only in um, a personal relationship but also in the workplace. And so this evolution of career and this feminist movement is coming about as women are trying to gain an understanding of themselves and how they fit within their role. But we're completely neglecting the, uh, the fact that it's a personality type. We're simply putting it as, as a gender role. And I think that's something that maybe could be explored further. I just wanted to bring that up. Uh, April, thank and you. And then for also, that. yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I have worked in fields, career fields, my whole life where I was the only female in the office other than the secretary. I've worked in computer science, I've worked in um, firefighting, I've worked in GPS mapping, and quite literally, I've been the only female other than the secretary. <laughs> And mm-hmm. so for me to, to have a different perspective, being surrounded by men in the workplace, you know, the typical underpaid and overlooked and, and, you know, even though we're not supposed to have it, there's always a sexism involved with that, um, gives me kind of a different vantage point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I wanted to just kind of include that we're still confused. And it's not just the female role, but the men are also just as confused because they're trying to understand how do we interact with this person of power when our society downplays that. And we're completely neglecting that it's it's not gender. It's all about personality. And then, and then I would add, April, that then you have cultural differences. I've I've, Absolutely. I've lived Absolutely. in Latin America, where the roles, at least at the time I was there, were very defined and, and less so are changing in, in the U.S. Uh, Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I come from a background where there is also a cultural difference as well, and so I, I couldn't agree more with that. Thanks, April. Uh, several points uh-huh. there. Uh, uh, Julie Newfer, uh, your response to any of that? Well, I think that um, I understand what April was saying about just personality types, but what the feminists would say is that is completely offensive. Women are not in any way um, unable or um, not as uh, equipped to do the kinds of jobs that men could do. And so uh, from that point of view, it would be that uh, studies like this that say, well, women are just inherently different are um, another way to just stereotype women. And so they would have um, women that believe in full equality would have a lot of problems with that outcome of that study, saying, well, you know, this is just another way to stereotype us, to say that we can't do the same kinds of jobs that men do, or to say that we are too emotional to think clearly, or that we are irrational, because these are the stereotypes of women. And as far as um, women in the workplace, uh, women still only make 80 cents on the dollar, uh, as men do, when it comes to 
being paid. They don't have the positions of, of authority and power in fields like medicine and academics and some of these other male-dominated fields. So this continues to be a problem that women are trying to remedy, but at the same time, many women are saying, um, we don't agree with that either. The truth is, is that there are more women in so-called pink-collar jobs, like um, retail, cleaning, uh, housekeeping, uh, service jobs, that men uh, make more money in what we call labor jobs. So being uh, working on a construction site or laying bricks or working as uh, on a landscaping crew, they make more money than women do in these so-called, so-called pink-collar jobs. So there, there continues to be this inequality, and I really am hearing what April has to say about how different it is for a woman to be working in an all-male um, all male uh, environment. And I think she said that she got paid less than the men did that worked in that same environment. Um, I, I think that's what she said. So. These are yeah. These are some of the ill effects, I guess, from from stereotyping, and that's a that's an that's a key question. I think that you've brought up that I think is at the center of all this. Uh, are you going to embrace gender differences? Are you are you going to you know, deny them? Are you going to be somewhere in the middle? We're going to take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll first up will be Barbara in Logan. So be patient, Barbara. We'll get to you right after the break. The book is Helen Andelin and the Fascinating Womanhood Movement. Our guest is Julie Newfer. Uh, this book is newly out from University of Utah Press. It's uh, it's a fascinating slice of American history. That's what Julie Newford teaches at Eastern Washington University. More following this break. Pro- programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread, located at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, featuring a holiday cookie box sampler for dinner parties, business meetings, and gifting. Information at crumbbrothers.com. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll scale some lofty peaks in search of music from the mountainous regions of the world. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for Mountain Music, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Fascinating history. You may or may not have been aware of this. I was not, uh, so I've just been fascinated to read about this. The book is Helen Andelin and the Fascinating Womanhood Movement. The author is Julie Newfer, and she's our guest for the hour on Axis, Utah. 1963 was the publication year of The Feminine Mystique, Betty Friedan. And uh, that was the same year uh, that Helen Andelin published her book, Fascinating Womanhood, or Fascinating Womanhood. Uh, launched a movement... And uh, the two women were uh, addressing the, the same issues, un, women unhappy in, in their traditional roles. And the two prescriptions couldn't have been more different. Um, over time, I guess you could say that uh, Friedan's uh, 
prescription and the uh, second wave of feminism has won out. But many women then and uh, and many today hold to some of these ideas put forward by Mrs. Andelin. We're talking about it on the program today. Let's go uh, next uh, right to our caller who's been waiting patiently, Barbara in Logan. Barbara, glad you called. Welcome to the program. Hello, how are you? Good. Good. I will, let me just give you a quick background on myself to start. Um, I just wanted to... Um, I, I'm a local Utah Mormon. I, um, you know, attend church regularly, but I also identify strongly with feminism. Um, I'm, I would consider myself a liberal in most ways. Um, and I do feel like a lot of these issues are far more complex than a single label can uh, describe. And um, I myself have been a working professional with a degree for many, many years, um, but I'm also a mother. And... I just recently, in fact, this week on Monday, decided to leave my job and become a stay-at-home mom. And, I, you know, I've worked for years and love my profession. I, I love my job. I love the people that I work with. I love being a professional and um, feel strongly that women ought to be treated equally in a workplace, ought to be paid equally as men. Um, and these are things that I, you know, feel very strongly about. However, I have chosen to be a stay-at-home mom because I feel like that is what I truly want to do. And, um, you know, it was interesting what you were saying um, right when we came back from break when you said that there are these two prescriptions um, for the, the solution of women not being happy and that there is so much more complexity to it than there there's this one solution or this other solution and that we as women or that we as human beings and people just need to find what works for us to be happy and that that may be a thousand different solutions for a thousand different people. And for me, uh, even though I've loved my profession and I truly love what I do, I, I love being home with my kids even more. And so that has been what's working out for me. And, you know, and also there's no one else that can nurse my baby. That that is something that only a woman can do, and you know that there. I feel that women and men are equal, but there are certain things that only a mother is capable of, um, physiologically in that way. So um, I just wanted to to comment that there's there is a lot of complexity to this issue, and I'm really enjoying this discussion on it. Okay, Barbara. Thank you. P- appreciate thank you. your your comments and your example. That's uh, and uh, Julie Newfer, uh, Barbara's decision, her dilemma, the complexity of, of what she's trying to decide to do is is uh, it's not uncommon. It's it's very very common, and it's interesting that uh, Betty Friedan, when she first wrote the feminist mystique, really was very hard on on um, housewives. And then as time went on and the feminist movement became more militant, she actually stepped back. She steps down as president of um, the uh, National Organization of Women, and she said feminism has gotten too divisive, and I think that we need to concentrate more on families and not on hating men. And so she softened her, her original standpoint, and... She had many critics in the feminist movement who said she's trying to reverse our, revela- our, our uh, revolution. And on the other hand, Andlin, who encouraged women to stay home and to live off of the earnings 
of their husband to not bring in their own money, but to be thrifty. Angela herself was a career woman because she was out promoting this book. She was making a lot of money, and so she, in reality, left her home so that she could encourage women not to leave their homes. So she got a lot of criticism by people saying, you know, you're telling me not to be a career woman, but look at your career. And so she would say, actually, it's not a career. It's uh, a mission of charity. And so both of these women kind of came out very, very strong, but when it came to trying to live live out these issues, they both found that it was much more complex. And I agree, it is very complex. There is no one particular answer. But I think if women, and I think, um, at least I encourage my students to look at both sides of this issue. Don't just look at the feminist movement. Don't just look at the conservative movement or the Christian right or the uh, the liberal fringe, <laughs> but look at this entire issue and then try to navigate your way through and see how other women, um, their own mothers or sisters, themselves or classmates, how are they navigating through these very complex issues? We uh, have about five minutes left. I want to get in a couple uh, last comments and then get uh, Julie Newfer's uh, final words on this. By the way, much we didn't get to. Uh, you'll have to read the book. It's out from University of Utah Press, Helen Andalon and the Fascinating Womanhood Movement. Uh, I was fascinated, Julie Newfer, by by your interactions with Helen Andalon uh, later in her life. The, the family ended up in Missouri, by the way. Uh, so the, here's a comment from Bobby on the Facebook uh, page. She writes, I remember reading Fascinating Womanhood as a young bride and newly minted feminist. I read it aloud to a group of soldier friends of my husband once. It said, you can always find one good thing to say about your husband, even if it's only about fixing the car. And they laughed. She said, that's Bobby's (laughs) reminiscence. Thanks for that, Bobby. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wanted to get this in. Uh, This is probably not atypical. This, again, is uh, is from By Common Consent. It's Jesse Jensen's review of of the book. And she, uh, near the end of her review, uh, she says she she recommends the book. By the by the way, she says above all else, the book made me want to troll the original fascinating womanhood book on Amazon, recruit Gloria Steinem to do dramatic readings of the more ridiculous passages, and go express several opinions <laughs> to my husband just because I can. That's maybe <laughs> maybe a young woman's you know or, or a new woman's or maybe any woman's uh, nowadays uh, reaction to to fascinating womanhood. What what do you say to that? Well, certainly. Um... The other day I was at a book signing and a woman came up to me and she said, well, now, what's your book about? So I started to tell her and she said, actually, I have no interest in your book and I have no interest in talking to you about your book. And I said, well, thank you for stopping by. And, uh, you know, but I certainly understand that Helen Andelin's message is quite inflammatory to a lot of people. And... Um, she has been laughed at, and she many of her passages, like uh, "Happy Wives" or "Helpless Wives," those things just sound silly to us, and they're they are inflammatory. But she had an audience; she had people who who listened to her, 
and um, and she also tended to have the press kind of in the palm of her hand. She was very gracious, and she had great manners, and she, she people in the press said, she's got pretty legs, she smells good, oh, look at her beautiful dress, you know, where it tended to, when they were interviewing the feminists, they wanted to hear their message. So it's it's interesting the way she was perceived by both her supporters and her foes. Uh, we, I think we'll need to extend the program a, uh, just a little bit, if that's okay, Julie Newfer. Um, sure. There's a comment that actually came in early in the program that uh, I got so busy with uh, fielding the calls that I didn't get to this, so I want to get that. We have an email that just came in, uh, so you could get a quick call in at 1-800-826-1495. Email us at upraxis at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Utah Public uh, Utah Public Radio. So this is from Helen. Uh, Helen from St. George says she ended up leaving the LDS Church in part because the Relief Society brought the fascinating womanhood pamphlet and teachings into lessons. She said she was married for 30 years and the teachings were a factor in ending her marriage. Uh, so, so this is, uh, uh, that's, that's uh, Helen's experience. Well, uh, Andalyn, in the beginning, because she's a Mormon woman, she talked to her Mormon friends, and in the beginning, uh, the, the Mormon church allowed her to teach some of her classes at church, and she did teach some of her classes in Relief Society lessons, which is the, Mormons, the Mormon uh, women's group at church. But in time, because she became um, more and more stringent, she stops being allowed to teach those classes at church. She started to be shunned by church leaders, and she started to feel that the church, and when I interviewed her, she said, I have two enemies. One are the feminists, and the other is the Mormon church. Because um, Mormon women didn't really want to hear that message. I mean, parts of it about taking care of your family and putting your family first. I mean, some of those are values that a lot of people can, um, uh, can identify with. But many Mormon women, uh, Mormon women are a party sort. You know, they're not going to, many of them are not going to say, I'm not going to um, wear only dresses, or I'm not going to do just women's work, or I'm not going to obey my husband without... Um, blindly obey my husband. And um, so what happened is that fascinating womanhood fell out of favor among Mormon women. So you find that a lot of Mormon women have read the book. A lot of women who are not Mormon have read the book. But I certainly can identify with uh, this, this woman who wrote the email that many Mormon women were offended and said that, you know, we shouldn't have to live by this. When Andalyn tried to meet with Mormon officials, and she tried many times to meet with the general authorities and tried to get her, her book um, to be recognized by the church, she was told by uh, Barbara Smith, who was the uh, president of the Relief Society for the entire church, that fascinating womanhood was not something that she would recommend that Mormon women read. She found it manipulative and offensive. So uh, that's what the leader of the Relief Society 
uh, the Mormon Relief Society actually told Andolin in person. And mm. so Andolin really felt that the church had let her down, and she considered leaving the church. Uh, she was so offended and so upset, she couldn't believe that her own church would not um, follow along with something that she believed was a personal revelation. The problem that the church had is if the church is based on personal revelation, then how are you going to control somebody who said, well, I did have a personal revelation and this is what I believe to be true. So what the church ended up doing was very kindly ignoring her. Hmm. I wonder, did she, did Andalyn get negative feedback from those who read and maybe even lived for a while those principles. Helen uh, says that uh, she says that these teachings, the uh, Fascinating Womanhood teachings, were a factor in ending her 30-year marriage. She did get women who wrote to her, and I read some of their letters, too, that said that this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of, or that um, I tried this, I couldn't, I just couldn't bring myself to live this way, I found it demeaning. Or uh, Mrs. Andelin, uh what do you say to a woman who whose husband has just blackened her two eyes? Are you going to call him a knight in shining armor? So she did have her critics, and she felt that uh, she tended to blame women. Well, you know, you probably just did, didn't leave, uh, you didn't learn correctly, you didn't practice these uh teachings as you should have. Happiness depends on you, not your husband. So when women would write to her with some of these complaints, she was uh, actually quite unsympathetic to them. And she, my experience with her, she was a difficult person to work with. She was very strident and um, at, at some point, she would listen to, well, I can see how somebody might think that, but they were wrong, you know. So that was kind of Andalyn's point on that. If, if somebody wrote to her and said, I tried to live this and it ended my marriage and it also ended my, um, my uh, membership in my church because I felt that my church wanted me to do this, Andalyn's response would probably be, well, you didn't live the principles correctly. Let's, Which, uh, is, of course, is highly offensive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it is fascinating, your interactions with uh, with Andalyn uh, near the end of her life in, out in Missouri. Uh, one more email here, and then we'll close the program. Uh, this is Dorothy who says, currently reading the book Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking, in which your discussion is viewed from the Bolshevik policies of the 1920s, the new Soviet woman, not for her domestic toil that crushes and degrades women, uh, quote-unquote, Lenin's words, not for her nursery drudgery, so, quote, barbarously unproductive, petty, nerve-wracking, stultifying, end quote, Lenin again, no, under socialism, society would assume all such burdens, eventually eradicating the nuclear family. Thankfully, we have more of a happy medium, says Dorothy. Mm-hmm. That's an uh, interesting juxtaposition of ideas there. Uh, thanks for that, I think it. I think it's very interesting. It's, it's uh, well said. We, have, we uh, value our families 
very much in this country. Women still feel this um, being torn. You know, what what should I do as a, a wife and a mother? Many women are still looking for answers. And if you just go to your local bookstore there in town, um, in my town we have a bookstore, Hastings Bookstore. It's a big chain. And you can find fascinating womanhood in the store. People are still buying it and still looking for answers as to how, uh, how, what can I do to make my marriage better? What can I do to find more happiness as a woman? And so there's all kinds of different books out there, but Fascinating Womanhood is one that people continue to read. We'll uh, leave it there. We're out of time. As I mentioned, a fast, it's a fascinating read, and it's out from University of Utah Press. Helen Andelin and the Fascinating Womanhood Movement. The author is Julie Newfer, who has been my guest for the hour. Thank you so much. Thank you. And this discussion can continue. Keep that coming at upraxis@gmail.com on our Facebook page, uh, Utah Public Radio, and on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about three nurses who traveled from Utah to Europe to serve in World War I. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, director of the Utah Humanities Council. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. UHC is proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories as part of our statewide tour of the Smithsonian exhibition, Journey Stories. Tune in each week for a new Utah Journey story from the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. As World War I intensified in Europe, so did the need for medical help. The Red Cross established base hospitals and field units throughout Europe and launched a major recruitment campaign for medical staff. As the United States entered the fray in 1917, the War Department aimed to enlist 25,000 nurses. There were 450 trained nurses in Utah that year, and 80 of them volunteered to leave for Europe to serve the war effort. One of these women was Myrtle Butler of Sanderville, Utah. She graduated from the LDS Hospital School of Nursing in 1917 and was working in Wyoming. When the Red Cross called for nurses, Myrtle signed up and was eventually assigned to a hospital in France. In December of 1918, she wrote, Oh, what a joy it is to be of some service to those noble boys of Uncle Sam's. Maud Fitch of Eureka, Utah, was an ambulance driver in France. In her letters home, Maud describes driving through completely dark roads packed with advancing troops, coming upon towns that were destroyed by bombshells, and bribing traffic directors with cigarettes in order to get her ambulance through. Mabel Bedellion was assigned to Evacuation Hospital No. 1 and recounts that in one night alone, more than 800 wounded American soldiers were brought in. Due to the shortage of nurses, she was given the responsibility to care for 136 of them. Many of the other nurses prized souvenirs from the German patients, but Mabel wrote that, Seeing our men wounded and dying is all I want to remember. I feel now as though I wouldn't give the smallest place in my trunk for anything off a prisoner. Myrtle, Maud, and Mabel journeyed to Europe to fulfill their duty as nurses and brought home unique experiences that advanced the nursing profession. Moreover, their service demonstrates the importance of women's contributions during World War I. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Heidi Tak. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank.
This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.